Thank you for joining us for the study of God's Word today. Grab a Bible and listen carefully as God will be speaking to us through His Word today. And may the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our Rock and our Redeemer. We're going to look where we left off last week. We're going to be looking in the 13th chapter of John in the remaining moments. We're going to begin with verse 18. God willing, go through verse 30. And I'm going to talk on the matter of finding oneself on the brink of betrayal. When I was a boy, young man actually, one of my favorite groups was a group entitled OJs, the OJs. They had the Motown sound, and I was a big fan of Motown music, for sure. And they had a song, it was the only song that ever made number one, it's called Backstabbers. They smile in your face, I'm gonna sing it if I'm not careful. They <laughs> smile in your face, the backstabbers. Do you know that the world is replete with backstabbers? And the literature, that has grown up around the theme of being a traitor, betraying someone close to you, that has become a dominant theme in literature, in movies. One wonders, is it art imitating life or life imitating art? And I would say, hands down, it's art imitating life. There is the potential betrayer in many of our hearts. And the story that is most vivid in all of the literature, we could go to Julius Caesar and hear Caesar by the words put in his mouth in that play by Shakespeare say to Brutus, his good friend, et tu, Brute, and you too are part of this conspiracy to kill me. And certainly he was. Or we could read the line, the witch in the wardrobe. Many of you are devotees of that book and the whole series of the Chronicles of Narnia. And we could see Edmund, the younger brother in the Provinci family, who betrays his own siblings by taking up with the white witch who is representative of Satan in that movie. But the good news is that story turns out well, doesn't it, if you're familiar with? Or Gollum, that grotesque figure in the two towers of the Tolkien trilogy and how he wants the ring and he looks at it and thinks of it he calls it oh precious and I'm not doing a very good imitation of Gollum but nevertheless Gollum goes to great lengths to betray for instance Frodo they're both from the Shire by the way both hobbits and he goes to great lengths. He puts him and his friend Samwise Gamgee into jeopardy when they find themselves in the lair of this huge spider. And that is an incredible situation. But the greatest and most vivid picture of betrayal is in this passage. The betrayal of Christ by Judas. Judas... Do you know anybody named Judas? I don't hear anybody saying, yeah, I know somebody named Judas. The name Judas was a popular name in the day of Jesus. 
In fact, one of Jesus' half-brothers is named Judas. Did you know that? Read your Bible. Matthew 13. He's described as one of the half-brothers of Jesus. Judas. His name was later Jude. You can see why in one of the books in the Bible. It's a brief book. Next to the last book in the New Testament, Jude. Great book. Warning against false doctrine and false teachers. But what we know is this name was a name that now lives in infamy, doesn't it? Because of the person associated with that name. I want to look at this passage with you. And I'm not going to read straight through it. I'm going to use every verse, God willing, that I remember that substantiates what I'm going to talk about. If you're on the brink of betrayal now, or if you are in the future of betraying Jesus Christ, you can know it. We have this example in the passage of a man who betrayed Christ. And the first test we might apply to our lives, drawing from this passage of Scripture, as to how we might know if we are indeed people who are liable to betray Christ, is the test of insincerity. The passage we're going to look at right away is verses 21 and 22 of John 13. Look at it. When Jesus had said this, He became troubled in spirit. What is it referring to? It's referring to verses 18 and following. Look at 18 of John 13. I do not speak of all of you. I know the ones I have chosen, but it is that the Scripture may be fulfilled. He who eats my bread has lifted up his heel against me. Who might that be, by the way? Judas. From now on I am telling you before it comes to pass. So that when it does occur, it hadn't occurred yet, but it's just a little while that will elapse before it does occur. You may believe that I am He. Interestingly, the simple phrase, I am He. The word He does not appear in the original text. If you were to open a Greek New Testament, you could read it. What you would see is only the two words, ego, I me, I am. And what we discovered about Jesus' usage of that phrase, I am, Jesus, whenever He uses it, He uses it multiple times in the Gospel of John because He wants His hearers to be sure that they understand His identity. Jesus is not just a good man. He was that. He was beyond good. He was perfect. Never sinned. But He was also fully God. For when God revealed Himself to Moses in the burning bush and was asked by Moses, Whom shall I tell Pharaoh? And whom shall I tell your people, Israel? Has sent me to liberate my people and your people. He said, Tell them that I am sent you. So Jesus was well aware of His identity. He was not confused about who He was. He was fully man and fully God. He goes on to say in verse 20, Truly, truly, I say to you, He who receives whomever I send receives me, and he who receives me receives him who sent me. Isn't, isn't that wonderful? We've seen 
four of our young people who are being sent out. They're part of a large group going. We have a group in Spain. Do you know, you don't have to leave El Paso to be sent out. You can go into your secular, so-called secular world. I think about what's happened in the last week about the decision on the Supreme Court to stand up and do what is right about preborn people. What a, what a difficult thing that must have been for them. But what courage incited them to do that. You can be on mission in your world, whatever that world is. You are an ambassador for Jesus Christ, if you know Jesus, and He wants you to represent Him and represent Him not with any arrogance, but with humility and represent Him fully and completely in that environment. But we see here, looking again with that as a background, when Jesus says at the last of verse 21, truly, truly, I say to you, that one you will, will betray me. And that is troubling Jesus. And it would you too, for sure. Here's the first test. It's the sincerity test. The eleven had no idea that Judas was the traitor. Look at verse 22. The disciples began looking at one another at a loss to know of which one he was speaking and if we were to go to Matthew 26, which is another rendition of what happened, it was Matthew's account. He was present, just like John was present. They were there. And this is what Matthew requires. Every one of the 11 apostles who did not betray looked at each other. And they were not just sort of glancing at each other. We know by the construction, the grammatical construction here, that they were surveying and they were looking in the faces of their peers wondering if there would be anything that would be indicative on their faces that that person might be the betrayer. And by the way, they looked at Judas too. Judas probably looked as startled as they. He masqueraded as an angel of light, just like false teachers always do or false followers of Christ. There was nothing in his countenance and there really had been nothing in the way he had conducted himself. In that passage, in Matthew 26, we hear the apostles asking the question, all of them, all eleven, ask the same question. Surely it isn't I, Lord. They were hoping it wasn't, but they were concerned about it. Maybe they were and they just did not know it. It's possible to be duped and not knowing that you are on the brink of betrayal. But when it came Judas's turn, do you recall what he said? He said, surely it is not I. Same words, but notice the way he addressed Jesus. Rabbi. He did not call Him Lord. He could not bring Himself to call Him Lord because He wasn't His Lord. The Bible says in 1 Corinthians 12, 3, that no one can say Jesus is Lord apart from the Holy Spirit of God. He did not have the Holy Spirit. Therefore, he could not get that out of his mouth. He may have intended to, but he could not do it. I think the Holy Spirit restrained him from saying that in that situation. 
So what we need to do is understand that this man Judas did not give any appearance. He was not the brooding, dark person that some artists have portrayed him as being in their artwork throughout the centuries. I would imagine that when he prayed, his prayers were the envy of the other guys. I don't know that, but I, I would think that's a possibility. You see, all 11 of the others came from Galilee. Galilee was looked down in the world of Judaism more than any other area because it was hillbilly country, basically, to make an equivalence. And so these people were not well-schooled. They were, in many ways, considered illiterate country bumpkins. But this man was from Kerioth, and Kerioth is in Judea. This man probably had more refinement in his manners and in his knowledge of things related to the Torah, the Talmud, all the sacred books of Israel. He could pray eloquently, perhaps. He could preach effectively. He had been sent out, as had the other 11. Matthew 10 talks about it, how Jesus sends the apostles out in pairs, and they go and they preach the gospel. He preached the gospel. That's what the scripture says. I take that seriously. Is it possible for someone who is a charlatan to preach the gospel? Why, sure it is. He had heard what Jesus had said. He was a bright man probably, so he had internalized that and he had been prepared to go and preach. We don't know if anyone turned to follow Christ as a result of his preaching. It's possible there are many instances well documented in the history of the Christian church where people who were not true followers of Christ, they were false, doc, tr false teachers, preached and people got saved. Can you believe that? Well, I can believe it. And the reason I can believe it, and probably the reason you believe it, if you do, is because the gospel is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. The gospel is the power. I know of a man who was a great leader among Baptists almost a hundred years ago now. And he was pastoring a First Baptist church of a church in the Midwest. And as he gave a sermon one day on the gospel of Christ, guess who got saved? He was born again that day under his own preaching. So the power is in the gospel. And this man Judas likely had preached and it was no slouchy sermon that he preached probably. And this added to the mystery that we see portrayed in this setting when they're looking, who is it? Who is it? Who is it? They didn't immediately and probably were surprised when it actually ended up being him. Well, his insincerity I'm talking about, Judas of course, was cloaked in his apparent philanthropy. He liked to do kind things for people who were needy. Look at verse 28 and 29. Now, no one of those reclining at the table knew for what purpose he had said this to him, that would Jesus to Judas. For some were supposing because Jesus had the money box, 
And it, we took time, we're lacking time, but go back and read again, John 12, 4 through 6. And he was the treasurer. He kept the money box. And the scripture goes on to say, they were saying to him, buy the things we have need of for the feast. That's, they thought that's what Jesus was saying to him. They couldn't hear what Jesus said to him when Jesus says, what you do, do quickly. They didn't catch that. And Jesus was in effect kind of protecting him in, in a way in that situation. I'm talking about Judas. But what we see here in that verse and the other thought they had that he should give something to the poor. We take a compassion offering every time we observe the Lord's Supper. I've mentioned that. We're going to take it for elderly, retired, or widowed people who've been involved in ministry in the state of Texas and all over the United States who are of the same persuasion as we are, the Baptist community. Well, that has something that goes all the way back to Israel when it was customary, when the Passover especially was done, when people who didn't have the means to gather all the necessary elements of Passover and people would gather a collection from among themselves and share it with someone else. They thought, maybe he's doing that. He was a philanthropist. He even portrays himself in that way in the 12th chapter when he gripes about the fact that Mary of Bethany had taken this highly expensive perfume. It was worth 300 denarii. That's a whole year's worth of day laborer wage and squandered it, he thought, on Jesus. Well, we know better than that, don't we? We can't give too much to Jesus. He gave it all to us and it's simply on loan from Him. His insincerity was a cloak for his greed. Greed seems to have been the primary motivation for Judas's betrayal. And interestingly, what was the bargain? What did he get? It was not a king's ransom. It was a ransom price for a slave. 30 pieces of silver. A small amount considering who it was that he was betraying the King of kings, the Lord of lords, who though he was rich in heaven before he became a human like us, he became poor on our behalf in order that he might make us rich, not financially, not materially, but make us wealthy in those things which can never be taken away from us because we who know Christ have been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies in Christ Jesus. Do you understand that greed gave Satan an opportunity in Judas's life. The Bible says in Ephesians 4.27, do not give Satan an opportunity in your life. And one of the means whereby he is given such an opportunity, and the word translated opportunity in the language of the New Testament, literally was used to describe a base camp of operation of an enemy army. Don't give him that place, Satan. That's the word of the Lord to us. It was one which was wasted on this character we know as Judas. The Bible says in Colossians 3.5, greed is idolatry. You ever thought about that? Coveting, wanting something that we don't have. Gotta have it. Just gotta have it. Whatever it is. 
His insincerity was preserved by his aloofness. He was not one who would let others get close to him, probably. And this has to do with the fact that he was from another part of the country. And he was wise enough in his satanic association to hide himself from the others. His insincerity peaked in his receiving the morsel. In verse 26, look what it says. Jesus therefore answered, that is the one for whom I shall dip the morsel and give it to him. Peter has said, look at 24, Simon Peter therefore gestured to Jesus and said to Jesus, tell us who it is of whom he is speaking. He, leaning back thus on Jesus' breast, and this is the way the dinner table would be arranged. The table was short, probably not over a couple of feet, two and a half feet tall. And those who were at the table, there would have been 13 of them, would have, as was the custom, taken the left arm and leaned against that arm. So the right hand could be free to eat. In Middle Eastern culture, even to today, you don't use the left hand to eat. It's the left hand that is contaminated by its use. And then, in addition to that, what would happen is the person to your right, and Jesus, as this was a rectangle with an end out. There was no end on the side apart from where the host, who would be Jesus, would be seated. But there would be two lines that would be parallel with each other, and then this one place on the end of the table that would be perpendicular to those two vertical arms of the table. And they would sit there. And to Jesus' right was Peter. And he leaned on the breast of Jesus and asked him, I mean, not Peter, but the, God, the disciple whom Jesus loved, which would agree, it's agreed by scholars that would be John. I think there's good evidence for that. So Peter speaks to John. John speaks to Jesus. And then what does Jesus do after he says what he says here? We're going to see in a moment. He leans over, and who was on his left? It was Judas. And the place that Judas occupied, according to custom, in that particular moment, was the place of prominence. It was usually reserved for the, uh, the host to reserve for the guest of honor. So you see, Jesus was still in a sense, he was still chasing after the heart of this man, Judas. And Judas, oh, Judas, Judas was a man who received the morsel. In verse 26, look at it again, that is the one for whom I shall dip the morsel and give it to him. Here again, the morsel was reserved for the guest of honor. And he gave it to him. So when he had dipped the morsel, he took and gave it to Jesus, Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. Now, I'm going to move from the test of sincerity to the test of sensitivity. Sensitivity to our sin against Jesus, but also sensitivity to Christ himself 
Look at verse 21, the way it begins. When Jesus had said this, He became troubled in spirit. That drew forth concern, I'm sure, on the part of the eleven. They loved Jesus. And they could see, they had rarely seen evidence of any kind of distress in Christ's life. But what we see, this beautiful picture of their showing their concern. And they weren't pointing a finger at Judas, were they? They were thinking, is it I? Is it I? Is it I? They were looking around. They were caught off guard by all of that. But this great imposter, Judas, had pulled the wool over their eyes, not over the eyes of Jesus, because he knew, didn't he? Certainly. But he was insensitive. He probably acted like he was sensitive, but he was not for sure. Does the fact that your sin, this is what I've had to think about myself, that my sin sent Jesus to the cross bother you? Does it ever touch you? Do you feel remorse for it? If not, we could be walking perilously near the brink of betrayal. A third test is the test of skepticism. And this is bred by none other than the devil himself. And Judas, a representative of the devil, was a skeptic. Are you a skeptic when it comes to God and Jesus you might say, I believe in God, but I don't believe in Jesus. Well, the only way to really know God is through Jesus. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. It's only through Jesus that we come to the Father and we know the Father. He was a skeptic. And we want to go on to the last test, the test of sovereignty. Remember what the apostles, the eleven believing apostles, the way they spoke of Jesus? Is it I, Lord? Here we hear, as we've seen already, that Judas says, is it I, Rabbi? He had never made Jesus Lord. And making Jesus Lord for you and me, it's the bottom line, is giving Him absolute control of our lives. So you and I can know if we're on the brink. Apply these tests. The test of sincerity, sensitivity, skepticism, and sovereignty of God, Jesus. If you're on the brink of betrayal, you're one step away from disaster. Verse 27, And after the morsel, Satan then entered into him. Jesus therefore said to him, What you do, do quickly. This was the place of no return. When this man, Judas, who'd had ample opportunity, more than probably anyone has ever had, who has gone off into eternity without God, into the everlasting punishment of God in the place that the Bible describes as hell, place of outer darkness. And what we see here is that he took this morsel, and when he did, he went over the age. Satan possessed him until he ate the morsel. He could have, theoretically at least, backed out of the plan. But Judas wasn't nor ever had been clean 
Look at verse 10 and 11. We saw this two weeks ago. Jesus said to Simon Peter, He who has bathed needs only to wash his feet. And he's talking about spiritual cleansing, but it's completely clean. And you are clean. And the word you is not used singularly. When we look at the word you, we really can't tell, can we, if it's you singular or you plural? And in this case, you'll have to take my word for it, it's you plural. You all are clean, but not all of you. Who was the one he was eliminating? Well, Judas. Jesus knew who Judas was in that situation. And as an aside, this is important to understand. A true follower of Jesus cannot be possessed by Satan. Satan came to live in this man Judas. That's what it says. If you know Jesus, there's no place for Satan in your life. He can bug you. He can tempt you. But you cannot blame Satan for your sin. You're responsible for it as a believer and before you come to Christ as well. But what we need to understand is, greater is He who is in us if we know Christ. Who would that be? Jesus, right? Then He who is in the world, who would that be? Satan himself. Jesus reflects His sovereignty here. He says, commands him, what you do, do quickly. Game on is what Jesus was saying. You go do what you've already planned. My time has come and I'm ready to face what my responsibility is to be the Savior of the world. Judas went out into the night to do his dirty work. He turned away from the light of the world who was right beside him. He stepped out into the darkness, symbolic of His ultimate fate. Outer darkness is what Jesus describes that life apart from God forever in hell is. And the Bible also would indicate that Judas's suicide was a symbol of his own spiritual suicide. It began in his heart. Let's go on and look at the last thing this text would teach us about being on the brink of betrayal. And it is that Jesus wants to rescue you or me if we find ourselves on the brink of betrayal. He warned Judas from Scripture, didn't He? Look again at verse 18. Jesus says, I do not speak of all of you, repeating what He said up in verse 10 and 11. I know the ones I have chosen... He knew who Judas was when he picked him, but it is that Scripture may be fulfilled. Do you know what Jesus tells us about the Bible? Listen carefully. He says to his arch enemies, the Pharisees, he says to them, you search the Scriptures because you believe that in them you have eternal life. And you are right. That is where one finds eternal life, in the Word of God. He was indicating that the Word of God in the Scriptures, when He spoke of it, He was referring to the Old Testament. There was no New Testament then. The Old Testament gave prophecy, and this is one. It was well documented that Psalm 41.9, which is quoted here, He who eats bread has lifted up his heel against me. Isn't that fulfilled in this episode in the life of Christ? It's done, isn't it? We see it. If you were to take time to do research, and it's easily available online, if you just were to Google all 
the Old Testament scriptures that point to Christ in prophecy and indicate that he fulfilled those prophecies, this would be one you would find. And if nothing would convince a skeptic about the validity of the Bible, the trustworthiness of it, and the focus it has upon Jesus as a central figure, and in Him there is life eternal, nothing would convince you. It's amazing. You would stand in astonishment if you read Psalm 22, or if you read Isaiah 53, or you read... Hosea chapter 6. And we could go on and on and on. But in this passage of Scripture, we see Jesus warned Judas from Scripture, didn't He? He did warn him. But Judas bit the hand that feed him, fed him. rather. Jesus stationed Judas in the place of honor. We've already seen that. We talked about that seating arrangement and how it was the place of honor. And He didn't expose him to the others. He just whispered to him. We know that Peter knew, and after he was gone, undoubtedly, that message was passed around within that group. Jesus afforded Judas the morsel. And when given by the host, it was the high compliment of the evening. And still he didn't come forth. forth. The giving of the morsel without explanation would have been interpreted as an honor even the manner in which Jesus spoke to him in hushed tones speaks of his concern for Judas. Jesus knew the character of Judas. He knew it when he picked him. And you say, where does it say that, Mike? It doesn't say it, but it strongly suggests it. If we were to go to Luke chapter 6, and we would look verse 12 and 13, what we would see is, the night before Jesus picked His apostles out of a bigger group of disciples, He spent the whole night praying to God the Father. He would undoubtedly have gone down all the names of His disciples. We don't know how many there were. Could be a hundred. We don't know how many. A large number. He says, is it this one? Is it that one? Is it this one? And God said, among the twelve is Judas, and he will be the one who betrays you. Amazing. Jesus knew that. And he was in the presence of that man, Judas, and he saw the duplicity in his life as he watched him interact with the others. And he must have just shaken his head every once in a while when he thought of who he was. Amazing. Christ never would have tried to reach Judas in this period of Judas' life if he didn't think he might be able to rescue him. That is encouraging. I want to quickly give you some reasons. I know this question is raised in your mind. Why did Jesus choose Judas? Well, one reason is because the Father told him to. That's enough. And what you and I need to understand is what the Bible says in Isaiah 55 where the prophet says, God's ways are not my ways, nor are His thoughts my thoughts. My thoughts are as high as the heaven is above the earth compared to yours. And there's some things which we learn from the Lord that astonish us. But if we understand 
who he is and we believe God's word, then sometimes there'll be things that'll be a little difficult. But here's a second reason. This choosing of Judas by Christ by order of God the Father gave Christ opportunity to demonstrate his perfect obedience in his humanity. The Bible says in Hebrews 10.7, this is God speaking through the Old Testament. It's a quotation and it's about Jesus. Jesus embraced it. He said, I came to do the will of my Father. And in that description in Hebrews 10.7, there is this underlying statement that that two-line statement about the Messiah would come to do the will of the Father and to do it perfectly is the indication that it would come from the Word of God. Jesus believed in the Word of God fully. He completely adhered to it. He was one of the authors of the Scripture, if you will. That makes good sense. Here's a third reason why Judas was chosen. It provided an impartial witness to the moral purity of Jesus. And that witness was Judas himself. When he returned the 30 pieces of silver after regretting that he had betrayed Christ, this is what he said to that inauspicious group of so-called leaders. He threw the money before them. He said, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. Remember, it's too late now. He had crossed the line. He couldn't be saved at that point. But what it tells us is he gives us a picture of the one who hated him the most that he saw the sinlessness in this great person we know as Jesus Christ. The fourth thing in Judas being chosen by Christ is it provides us as sinners a solemn warning. Here's the warning. You can't read a book by its cover. The Bible says, man looks at the outward appearance, but what does God look at? The heart. And this does not mean that we should be skeptical of everyone we meet, but we are to be discerning. And there are a lot of people who portray themselves as people of God and maybe spokespeople of God that are anything but that. And I don't have anything... I don't have anyone in mind here, but we need to be on guard. And we need to be men and women of this book. You say, well, that's okay for you, Mike. You've had 50 years to study it, and you'd be right about that. You've had privilege to study it, and you would be right about that. But let me tell you, there are a lot of people in this church who know more about this book than I do, and they never went to one day of Bible college or one day of seminary. It's because they have read the Word of God and they have meditated on it and memorized it. And you are at no disadvantage because you do not have formal theological education. That's a, that's a mask people right, hide behind. Be a woman or a man of the Word. Read it. Ask God's Spirit to teach you. And what you can be sure of, He will always do that if you so wish to be taught by Him. The Bible says in Psalm 118, I just wrote it, read it, I think it's 8 and 9, it says this. It says, It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in man. It's better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in princes. There's no equivalent 
to the Lord, is there? We're to love each other. We're to learn from each other. We are never to be so proud we can't learn from the baby Christian or someone who's younger than we or less taught than we. But what we need to do is realize we always end up trusting in the Lord and we listen and we hear and we respond. And this is one of the things I'm sure that Judas was chosen by Christ for to warn us. And then here's the last thing that I would mention, the fifth thing. Choosing Judas enabled Christ to be our high priest. What is that all about? The book of Hebrews 4 says, we do not have a high priest. Jesus is who he's referring to. He cannot sympathize with our weaknesses. You know, Jesus could have been protected from being hurt by Judas and going to the cross. He didn't have to go. He volunteered. But he lay himself out, spread-eagled on the cross so that he could save you and me. And he understood what it was to hurt and to suffer. He understood our own infirmities, our own trouble. He is a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, is what we read from Isaiah 53 earlier. So he understands you. He's not some aloof God like Islam has or some nebulous God like Hinduism or Buddhism. I mean, he is a personal God and he wants you to know him and you can know him. And through knowing Him, you can know God the Father. Would you pray? Do you know Jesus? Or do you just know about Him? If you want to know Him and grow in Him, the ball is in your court to cross the line of partial commitment or no commitment to full commitment. That's the bottom line. We have to confess Him with our mouth as Lord. Would you just do that? If you've never received Christ, just confess Him. Say, Jesus, I believe You're my Lord. And I believe You were raised from the dead. You're alive. And I ask You to come and dwell in my heart as You forgive me of my sin. And Jesus, I ask this in Your name. Amen. Amen.